Welcome back to Solid Ground Fall 2020 series on the Gospel. I'm so excited to be here. Every week this semester, we'll be covering different aspects of the good news, which we need. This is a time of bad news, sad news, fake news. But when we come every Thursday night, we come back to the Word of God, we're standing on solid ground. Solid ground of God's Word is good news for us. Now tonight we come to the center of the gospel, the person of the gospel, Jesus Christ. When we say the person of the gospel, we don't mean the person speaking the gospel or the person hearing the gospel. What we mean to say is that the gospel is a person, Jesus himself. It's been common, it's become common for us to understand the gospel as revelation about Jesus, as teachings, doctrines, facts even about a person, but what we need to see tonight is that the gospel is a person. We as Christians announce not a what, but a who. We believe not a what, but a who. We announce a person. We're not just here as Christians propagating a worldview or a religion. We're announcing the wonderful person that we all need who could bring good news. C.H. Spurgeon a famous preacher in England in the 1800s, a famous evangelist, and he said emphatically that the gospel is Jesus Christ. He said it this way. Let me read you a quote. He said, if you could ask the 12 apostles in their day, what do you believe in? They'd be standing there. They would have pointed to Jesus and said, to him, said we believe him. If you would say to them, yes, but what are your doctrines? They would say, there they stand incarnate. You say, but what is your practice? They would say, there stands our practice. He is our example. And he said this, our theology, our creed, is summed up in the person of Jesus Christ. So brothers and sisters, tonight, the whole point of this message, my only hope for you is that you see Jesus, you hear from Jesus, talk to him, meet the person of the gospel. When we present the gospel to others, it, it just comes down to presenting the person. He's the good news embodied. I mean, let's face it, this is a broken world. This is a hurting world. We need good news. We need someone. And Jesus is that person that all people are called to meet as the good news. I think it's important that we do acknowledge that we do believe points. Christians have a common faith, and we acknowledge the importance of knowing the common faith, that we, we believe the Bible is the Word of God, inspired word by word by God. It's the divine revelation. Believe that God is triune, but He's one. He's Father, Son, and Spirit, but one God. We believe that the Son of God, even God Himself, came to be a man named Jesus Christ. This one lived a perfect human life, no sin, no guile, no rebellion, went willingly to the cross to die in our stead, died a substitutionary death for our redemption, rose on the third day, ascended to be the Lord of all in the heavens, and right now he's there. And anytime a person, a sinner, repents to God and believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, his sins are forgiven, and he's regenerated to become a living member of the body of Christ. And at a certain point, brothers and sisters, this Jesus will come again. This is, these are the points that we believe. This is the common Christian faith, and it's important to know what we believe. But tonight, 
we want to ask not what do Christians believe, but do we know whom we have believed? Christians believe not just a what, but a who. The first verse on your sheet there is 2 Timothy 1.12. Paul here says, I'm not ashamed. This is the last book he wrote. He says, I'm not ashamed because I know not what I have believed, but I know whom I have believed. Brothers and sisters, my whole goal tonight is that we would just come to know Jesus a little more. I think it's fair to say that not that many Christians could say what Christians believe, but the question tonight is how many know the person that they've believed? How many know him? He's the one that changes death into life. When he comes, darkness is turned to light. When he comes, tears are turned to joy, lameness into health, blindness into sight. He comes, changes water into wine. He releases the prisoners from the prison house. He sets us free from sin. He gives us a new hope. This is the good news. He's, he's the good news. We need to know him. And I'm going to read you another quote from another famous man, Napoleon Bonaparte. He's born, he was a born leader, the general, the famous French emperor, uh, general who founded the, the French Empire. He said, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Definitely, he knew men. He was a judge, an excellent judge of character. He said, but I tell you, Jesus Christ is no mere man. Alexander, Alexander the Great, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires, he said. But on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Upon force. In other words, what did we base our empires on? Upon force. We founded our empires by the sword. But then he says this, he says, Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. And to this hour, millions of men would die for him. This is the gospel. That someone has founded an empire upon love. That someone has come into the world, has won the allegiance of millions of men who would die for him. Why would millions of men die for this person? It's because he died for them and rose again, that they would no longer live to themselves but to him. It's because he saves us from the fear of death. He brings us into eternal union after death. Resur death is not the end. He brings us into resurrection. He brings us into life eternal with him. Millions of men would die for this person. Millions of men would not die for points of information on a page. So I'm so glad the gospel is not just information. The gospel is a person, first and foremost. I know a famous Christian leader in China about 100 years ago, he started to minister in China minister the person of Jesus Christ. Eventually he was locked up for his faith, and he eventually died for his faith in Christ, in prison. Twenty years in prison, they took away everything from him, his family, his friends, his health. Surely there was some torture there, he was alone, but he maintained a testimony there in prison. Those who knew him said that to the very end, he said this, he said, I have maintained my joy. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel, first of all, that Jesus Christ has come to be with you right where you are. If you're in a prison, he's with you. You can take away everything from a Christian, like they did to watch many in prison there in China. You can take away everything, but you can't take away everyone from a Christian. Because to a Christian, Jesus has a promise. Behold, I am with you all the days. I'm with you. This pandemic, it's removed us from community, we're in isolated places. Maybe you're in your room, in your parents' home, 
and you couldn't come to Austin, you feel more than ever the effects of isolation, loneliness, Jesus is your good news. He says to you right now, I am with you and I will never leave you. I'm with you all the days. He's the good news. I hope we can see tonight Jesus is the good news from every single angle. Let's look at the Word now. Let's look at some stories that tell us that the Gospel is the person of Christ. So we'll start with the Gospels. We'll start with John chapter 1. It's on your sheet, verses 45 and 46. And there you have Philip and Nathaniel from the city of Bethsaida. Philip and Nathaniel about to meet Jesus. Philip has met him, met Jesus. And he comes to Nathaniel and he says, we found him. We found him. He's preaching the gospel to Nathaniel. He says, we found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets wrote. Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. We found him. He's Jesus, son of Joseph from Nazareth. And Nathaniel is a little bit skeptical of this information. He says, he's from Bethsaida with Philip. They're like, we're from Bethsaida. Can anything good come from Nazareth? I mean, we know nothing good comes from Nazareth. I'm so glad that Philip at this point doesn't present, that doesn't argue the information. He doesn't say, Nathaniel, didn't you know God could choose the lowliest places and, and arise from there? That's his nature. No, he didn't do anything of the sort. He just said, come and see. Just come and see. Come and meet the person. He presented the person of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. And when Nathaniel met Jesus, shortly after that, he's there saying to Jesus, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. He's met Jesus, and he's met the good news. Let's come now to, let's come now to Acts. Acts is one of my favorite books because it's full of action. It's the acts of the apostles in propagating the gospel. Acts uses the word gospel more than any other book in the New Testament. It's a gospel, 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 gospel. It's the propagation of the good news of Jesus Christ by the apostles through the Spirit. So if we were to look at the Bible and say, well, what is the gospel? Well, let's look at where it's used the most. Let's look at Acts. And I love Acts because it's so clear. We have verses like Acts 8.35. And in this chapter, Acts 8, you have Philip there, preaching the gospel to an Ethiopian eunuch. Now this Ethiopian was a servant under the queen of Ethiopia, and he had converted to Judaism, and he had traveled all the way from Ethiopia in a chariot to Jerusalem to worship God according to Judaism, and he had finished that worship and was returning back to Ethiopia through the desert. And he's reading He's reading the Bible on his journey. He's reading Isaiah the prophet, and Philip is there. And it's like that promise the Lord gives. He says, if you seek me with all your heart, you will find me. And it's like the eunuch went to Jerusalem to worship in a temple with animals, sacrifices, and tithes, rituals. And the Lord was like, he was worshiping with all his heart. He was seeking me. Let's, Philip, get to him and tell him the good news. So Philip runs up, and he hears him reading the prophet Isaiah aloud. Just picture this. They're in the desert. You have the wheels of the chariot grinding against the sand. And Philip runs up and hears him reading this passage of Scripture. The passage of Scripture is from Isaiah 53, and it says, As a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is dumb, so he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation his judgment was taken away from the earth. 
Who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And Philip says, do you really know the things that you're reading? He says, how could I unless someone guides me? So Philip gets up into the chariot. And then the Ethiopian says, who is he writing about? This, this prophecy was written 700 years before Christ. So he's asking Philip, did the prophet write about himself or someone else? Then you have Acts 8.35. I love this verse. Philip opened his mouth, and beginning from this scripture, he announced Jesus as the gospel to him. He announced Jesus. He was reading about lambs, and he had just been worshiping according to, not according to Revelation, but according to what he knew. Tithes, offerings in Jerusalem. And Philip saying, there's good news. You don't have to go to Jerusalem and worship according to rituals. God has sent his son Jesus as the Lamb of God. In that section in Isaiah 53, it also has this verse. It says, By oppression and by judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who among them had the thought that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? Philip, you can just picture him there. Preaching, Jesus was cut off for our transgression. The stroke should have been upon us. He was crucified there, and God was pleased to crush him, to afflict him with grief for our sake. And we can just believe and be saved. And you know the, the eunuch believed, because they were going along on the road, and he saw water. He said, Philip, look, there's water. What prevents me from getting baptized? And Philip answered with the only requirement for baptism. I love it. He says this in verse 37. If you believe from all your heart, you will be saved. And the eunuch said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. I want you to say that to yourself. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. This is the Gospel. It's Jesus Christ himself. This is the Gospel. The book of Acts is the propagation of the Gospel. The next chapter in Acts is the conversion of Saul. Conversion of probably the most zealous person in the New Testament, Saul of Tarsus. He was he was a Pharisee. He advanced in Judaism beyond many in his race. We have a verse here from Galatians chapter 1 where he writes about this conversion from this perspective. It says, I advanced in Judaism beyond many contemporaries in my race, being more abundantly a zealot for the traditions of my fathers, the tradition of circumcision, the, the tradition of washing hands, of, of tithing, of animal sacrifices, all these rituals. He was for them, he loved them, treasured them. But, at a certain point, it pleased God to reveal his son in Paul. What happened was they were going along on the road and Saul's there, a zealot, Pharisee, he's outpaced so many others. He was trained at the feet of Gamaliel. It was like, he was like a summa cum laude graduate from Harvard. He was the who's who. And he's heard now, there's this Jesus from Nazareth that was a leader, but they crucified him, and rightly so, in Jerusalem. But now his followers are still worshiping him. I need to, I need to lock them up. I need to put them in prison. This is a heresy. I have to stop it. So he's going along, thinking he's serving God. And he gets near Damascus in this journey. He and his traveling group is going to lock up the Christians who call on the Lord, and suddenly... A light from heaven shines down on their whole group. They all fall on the ground. And Saul alone, here's the voice, says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He says to the voice, who are you, Lord? See, 
He had been worshiping God his whole life, serving God. Never once had God spoken to him. Never once had he known anything more than traditions, religion, rituals, rules, commandments. He thought that was all there was to please God. He didn't realize there was good news. The good news of his son. The voice said to him, I am Jesus whom you persecute. Here, Jesus preached the gospel directly to Saul. And just think about what happened after this. For three days and three nights, he was neither seeing nor eating. He was blinded by the light. They had to lead him by the hand into the city, and he was just in the room. It was like he was in quarantine. But what was he doing? It tells us he was praying. And when you hear praying, I want you to think he was talking to Jesus. They had just had a conversation. He continued that for three days and three nights. And for the first time in his life, he could talk to the God that he had been trying to please with rituals, with religious things, with rules. And suddenly the gospel was announced to him and he heard, Jesus is God. I thought I was pleasing him. I was persecuting him. His people are his body. And I'm a chosen vessel. But I'm set free from trying to please God by my effort. It didn't please God. That was persecution to Jesus. And he became the most zealous for the gospel in the New Testament. He wrote the word gospel way more than any other writer in the New Testament. I think Luke wrote, used the word gospel 11 times. John used the word gospel one time. He wrote the Revelation just one time. Peter used it four or five times. Paul used the word gospel 71 times in his writing. He was just a gospel man. He was immediately, he became, he began proclaiming Jesus. Jesus is the good news. Jesus is the good news to the Jews, the good news to the Gentiles. If you're like me, good news. If you're not like me, it's, I still have good news to the weak, to the strong, to those under law. I have good news to every man. I'm, I'm, I was trying to please God. I was religious, but I have good news for you. It's not our religion that pleases God. It's His Son being formed in us. How do I know that? How do I know that Saul was so thrilled by this good news? It's because this tendency to be religious is in all of us. It's, it's in all of us. It goes back to the garden. So if you go back to the Garden of Eden, there were two trees in that garden. There was the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. We if, if you're a Christian but you don't read the Bible much, you might think there was two trees, the tree of good and the tree of evil. And we ate from the tree of evil. That's why we have sin and evil. So then you become a Christian and you think, to please God, I just need more good in my life, more good things. I try to stay away from sin now. I try to be victorious. And God will be pleased with me if I just have more good in my life. But brothers and sisters, we have to see that's not the gospel. God does not want just people trying to be good. That's what Saul was. He was trying his best to please God. But he was convicted because the law was telling him, thou shalt not covet. And he realized, I try not to covet, but all kinds of coveting has worked out in me. I'm sold under sin. I do my best. I'm so zealous to please God by the works of the law, but I know I'm still a convicted sinner. And that's the, that's the case for all of us. We try to be good. We might try just, I just need a little more endurance in trial. I just need a little more patience. Then God will be pleased with me. I just need a little more victory over temptation. Then God will be pleased with me. I'm trying to be a good person. He should 
acknowledge that and just add a few good things to me and he'll be pleased with me. Paul would say, no, that's not the good news. The good news is that there was another tree in the garden, the tree of life. And the tree of life just signifies Christ as our sustenance. Christ. He's the vine tree. And he says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. He's the tree of life. It signifies Christ as our food. The gospel, like we heard last week, doesn't begin with a big B. It begins with a big believe. It doesn't begin with a big do. It begins with a big done. Our job is not to try to please God by our own effort. Our job is to eat Christ. Instead, is just to receive Him, enjoy Him, and then live by Him. Whatever you eat, you'll live by Him. Just eat Him as the tree of life and then live by Him. That's the good news to Saul. Saul was a man of the gospel. He was a man radicalized by Jesus Christ. And he would say, Saul, Saul, could you just tell us in a succinct way, what is the gospel? Paul, just break it down for us. He would say, I did. I did. Read my letter to the Romans. Read the epistle to the Romans. That whole letter is the gospel of God, like we saw last week. He's ready to announce the gospel to us who are in Rome. We're already Christians. We say, well, we already know the gospel. We say, no, we've barely started. We say, okay, well, Paul, let, tell us the gospel. What is it? He would say, well, let's start at the beginning. Let's start at the very beginning. We say, well, what is it, Paul? He'd say, it's not a what. The good news is not a what, it's a who. So we come now to point two. The gospel concerns his son with two natures, with his two natures, and the process of death and resurrection by which a human seed became the firstborn son. And this is a little bit complex, so I want you to lean in and listen closely. Your college students, your, you have a good mind for listening to lectures. I want you to focus in and follow with me here. As we go through Romans 1, 1 through 4. He says here, Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, a called apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, the good news of God. Then it says, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That's the subordinate clause. You can pretty much skip over that. That's the Old Testament prophesying that it's coming. The gospel of God concerning his son. Concerning his son. Now Paul is going to say that his son has two natures. Look at verse 3. His son, who came out of the seed of David according to the flesh. Now, we know that he's been the son of God from eternity past. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit have coexisted from eternity past, and all are God. In John 17, Jesus says to the Father, Father, glorify me with the glory which I had with you before the world was. So that's Christ as the only begotten Son of God possessing the divine nature. But you have to think of this like a flowchart. This Son of God with divinity, the divine nature, went through a process. It says he came out of the seed of David. So who's the seed of David? Mary is the seed of David here. And it's like when the Son of God entered into Mary, and came out, he was according to the flesh. Flesh came out. Who's that? That's Jesus, having both the divine nature and the human nature. This one went through this process of incarnation, but that human flesh that he put on 
listen, at that point it had nothing to do with divinity. It was the Son of Man, it was humanity. So he possessed both divinity and humanity. And this humanity needed to go through another process. So then you come to verse 4. It says, who was designated the Son of God? Now who, who is the who in verse 4? The who in verse 4 is what came out of the seed of David according to the flesh. Jesus having both humanity and divinity. But then it says he was designated the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness out of the resurrection of the dead. It's Jesus Christ our Lord. He's gone through now another process, a second process. So you have Jesus in the flesh going into death and resurrection, and what comes out is now called by God the Son of God. What comes out is now according to the spirit of holiness. But why is he called the Son of God on the day of his resurrection? Let me ask you this. I want you to think about this. He's, does this mean that he was not the Son of God before his resurrection? No, that would, that, that, would, that would be heresy. He's always been the Son of God. Then you have another verse. You have, like, you have like two verses in the New Testament, I believe, that talk about his resurrection and him being called the Son of God. The second verse is Acts 13.33. I don't have it on your sheet, but it says, You are my Son. This day have I begotten you. And that was the Father speaking to the Son on the day of resurrection. So he said to him, you are my son, this day have I begotten you. I believe we should be a little bit a little bit concerned. What's going on? He's always been the son of God. Why does he say I got that God the Father begot him on the day of resurrection? What happened is such good news, brothers and sisters. See, his humanity had nothing to do with divinity. But by going through that process of death and resurrection, it was invaded by his divinity. You see, when he went into the tomb, his divinity was in death for three days, but then it refused to be held by death, and it came back up out of the tomb and brought his body with it, and it invaded his body. Divinity invaded his humanity. You could say his humanity was sanctified by the spirit of holiness, and you could say it was uplifted on the day of his resurrection into the divine sonship. And now he's the firstborn son of God. No longer the only begotten. He's the firstborn Son of God, possessing both humanity and divinity. Brothers and sisters, this is such good news because this process he went through is the same process we are going through. See, God is using such a Christ, the firstborn Son of God, as the model or prototype to produce many sons of God. That's why Paul says the gospel, the good news, is concerning his Son, at the beginning of Romans. But when you come to the culmination of Romans, Romans chapter 8, you have this verse, the revelation of the sons of God. Romans begins with the Son of God, possessing humanity and divinity, and it culminates with many sons of God, you and I, brothers of Christ, possessing humanity that has been divinized. This was on Jesus' mind when he was on trial the high priest there, the night of his crucifixion, Matthew 26, 64. He had the high priest there, and he said, I charge you, tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Swear by it, tell us. So he was charging him, are you the Son of God? And Jesus says to him, 
you have said rightly. In Greek, it just says, you have said, you've said it. And with this word in Greek, you have said it, sort of implies or means is, it's obvious. You've said it. Like, duh, I'm the Son of God. You want me to tell you I'm the Son of God? Didn't you see I walked on water? Didn't you see I, I raised people from the dead? I fed 5,000, five loaves, two fish. Of course I'm the Son of God, but that's not what's really important. That's not what's really going on here. Jesus goes on, Nevertheless, I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power. What's going on here is my humanity will enter into the, into the divine sonship. My humanity will be divinized. This is the good news to us. Because that same process is going to happen with us. That word in Romans 8, the revelation of the sons of God, it's that same word. The anxious watching of the creation is waiting for the revelation of you and I as the sons of God. And the whole creation with the whales, the trees, the sun, the stars, they, are, they will be freed by the revelation of the sons of God. They'll be freed from the corruption that they're under. This is incredible. This is Paul's gospel, the good news. We won't be just sort of like Christ, but not really. We won't be just in name only sons of God. No. When we come out of the tomb, divinity will invade our humanity, and we will be exactly the same as Christ. Exactly the same as Christ in life and in nature. This is just incredible. Okay, now, the last point. We're, we're going to end on this third point here, that when we believe the gospel, we are transferred into the person who is the very gospel itself. And since we're in Christ, all that is true of him is now true of us. And this, this we, we have from a small Greek word, preposition into. In Greek, in John 3.16, you have everyone who believes into him. This is not the word in. You know, I could say I believe in Abraham Lincoln. That is, I acknowledge that he existed he did an important job, he did an important work in his life. I acknowledge an objective fact. But I'll never say, I believe into Abraham Lincoln. But in Greek, it says, we believe into Jesus Christ. That means that our faith transfers us into Christ. And now we're in union with Christ. In God's eyes, all believers have been put in him. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, of God we are in Christ Jesus. So I wanted to read a quote here from this book, The Normal Christian Life by Watchman Nee, where he describes that the history of Christ must become the experience of the Christian. We're not to seek experiences as such. We're rather to seek union with Christ, and then the history of Christ, with his death, his resurrection, becomes our experience. The scriptures tell us that we were crucified with him, that we were quickened, raised, and set by God in the heavenlies, in him, and that we are complete in him. In the scriptures we find that no Christian experience exists as such. What God has done in his gracious purpose is to include us in Christ. All spiritual experience of the Christian is already true in Christ. It has already been experienced by Christ. What we call our experience is only our entering into his history and his experience. So what this means is that as Christians, 
we ought not seek experiences in and of themselves. Rather, we need to realize the good news is Jesus Christ. The gospel is centered in Jesus Christ. We seek Him, and then all that is true of Him is true of us. Let me just ask you a few questions. Just so you engage, how well do I know what is true of Him and true of me? Did you know, did you know that He chose you before the foundation of the world? He chose you. When I was a senior in college, I heard a message that said, He chose you, and it hit me for the first time. The reason I'm here is He chose me. I didn't choose Him, He chose me. Did you know, brothers and sisters, that God is for us? He's not there with a, with a list, counting up all the things you've done wrong so that He can throw them at you when you meet Him. No, He's overwhelmingly for you. There is an ocean of goodness in His heart. He didn't spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all. He's for us. Did you know this? Did you know that all our sins are being constantly cleansed by the blood of Christ? It's like, if you wear contacts, there's a certain kind of cleaner called Clear Care, and it has a red top, and when you put the liquid into the bottle, it's, hydro, it's hydrogen peroxide, and there's a little metal at the bottom of the capsule where the contacts go, and it activates a chemical reaction, and bubbles just start flowing up constantly cleansing your contacts. It lasts for about six hours. Well, brothers and sisters, the blood of Christ, there's a chemical reaction, and God says in 1 John 1, 7, that His blood constantly cleanses us from every sin. Did you know this? We need to read the Bible so that we can know the person of the gospel. And lastly, did you know that He loves you? Did you know that? There's a divine romance brewing between he and you. You know, every time there's a romance in Seesaw, it's like, have you heard? You know, when there's a brother and a sister and they fall in love and it's heading toward marriage, we're all like, oh, you know, last year it was Jordan and Val. Did you hear about Jordan? Did you hear about Val? Did you hear about Jordan and Val? Have you heard? Do you know? You know, we're all excited because it's a romance. Well, I want to ask you, have you heard about Jesus and you? Did you know he wants to marry you? This is why he made Eve the way he did. Eve didn't, you know, it wasn't like Adam was like rhinoceros, alligator, lion, Eve. It wasn't like he found her among the creatures. There was no counterpart found for Adam. God had to put Adam into a deep sleep, and then from his side took a rib, and that rib he built into a woman. That deep sleep signifies the death of Christ. That rib taken out signifies the unbreakable life of Christ flowing out to us. That building of the woman signifies the building of the church. And when Eve was ready, he presented Eve to Adam and they got married. And when the church is ready, we'll be presented to Christ, holy, spotless, without blemish. And there will be a wedding. The whole Bible ends with this marriage of God and man. Did you know this? I just want you to know the person of the gospel. I want you to tell Jesus, Jesus, I love you. I haven't seen you yet, but I love you. I haven't seen you yet, but I believe it to you with joy that is unspeakable, full of glory. Amen.